Man, Jay, I feel so bad for Warpath. Ah, Miles, I know. You know, he and Colossus should really start a support group. I know all the bad stuff that's happened to him isn't technically Xavier's fault, but it's hard to get past the fact that if Charles hadn't talked John Proudstar into joining the X-Men, James would probably be at home living a relatively normal life. I'm not sure about that. Even pre-X-Men, life was pretty eventful for the Proudstar kids. How so? I know John was in the Marines. Well, and then right after he got home, their mom was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Okay, I mean, that's really sad, but it's also pretty well within the bell curve of normal life. Is that what John was so angry about when Professor X first found him? What, the cancer? No, no, that actually turned out to be a fake diagnosis, um, because her doctor was... Incompetent? A werewolf. What?! Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 281 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a world where it looks like the New Mutants movie is actually going to come out. As we're recording this, the new trailer just dropped like a couple days ago. I never thought we'd see the day. I mean, it's not April yet. I guess the movie could still get canceled, but maybe it won't. Oh man, I'm going to have a hell of a month. But did you watch the trailer? I did, and I gotta say, it looks good? Like, maybe real good? I don't know. I I have mixed feelings about it. My, my points of criticism are, I think, kind of the obvious ones that have come up a lot with regards to whitewashing. Sure. And I feel like those have been those have been discussed at length. I'm going to um, try to find and link to some some discussions of, of those, but specifically of Sunspot and of Celia Reyes, Reyes. But there are also some things in this one that were not in the the first release trailer that I feel like we need to talk about because Soul Sword. Yeah, although it looks almost like uh, the spiky things that Witchblade has, like it's almost a soul thing that comes out of Ilyana's arm, but still, it's clearly a soul sword, there's clearly soul armor, there are freaking stepping discs, uh, we see Maisie Williams get a little wolf spaney, and I'm not so sure about those effects, but I still like her casting a lot. You know, the good thing about cats is that it's lowered the bar so far for human-animal transformations in movies to come that I feel like no matter what they do, I'm going to probably be okay with it. Now I'm just imagining an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical of the Demon Bear Saga. I mean, it definitely wouldn't be his first time going for a literary antecedent. Um, definitely, definitely wouldn't be the weirdest direction he's gone. Did he do that one where everyone was trains? Yeah, yeah, Starlight Express or These Trains Wanna Fuck, the musical. <laughs> that would have been a much better title in my opinion. What's really amazing about Starlight Express, which is actually, it's it's kind of a clever concept because in addition to being about trains, it's basically a Cinderella story and it's specifically about a little, little kid staying up after his bedtime to play a Cinderella story with his toy trains, which is, is a cute conceit. But the thing about Starlight Express is that it has an incredibly, incredibly high injury rate among performers because they do the whole thing on roller skates and there are racing scenes where they're going upwards of about 35 miles an hour while singing. I've got to see this. I, it's, I mean, again, it's, it's Trains That Wanna Fuck, the musical. 
Well, on an entirely different note, today we're talking about X-Force, and I don't think there are any trains that do or don't want to fuck, at least at this point in the series. At least not that that takes center stage in these comics. That said, before we dive in, um, we do want to take a second for a content warning. We're going to be covering three comics today, and the first two that we talk about include a lot of references to child sexual abuse, domestic violence, and murder, including murder of young children. And if you want to skip that stuff, we would recommend fast-forwarding to the discussion of X-Force number 42, which you can find at 3442. We should probably recap some of the stuff that's leading up to all of this. So when Rob Liefeld took over plotting duties toward the end of the New Mutants 100-issue run, the comic got much more extreme. And part of that extremeness, as distinct from extremity, extremeness is its own thing, uh, was the addition of a handful of new members, most of whom were sharp on as many ends as possible. One of the sharpest of those members was Maria Caya Santos, a cat girl of the very violent variety who went by the superhero name Feral. Now, Farrell spent her brief time on the New Mutants and somewhat longer time on X-Force being a massive jerk to everyone and occasionally almost killing them for little to no reason. Also, her scratchy voice was really hard for Jay to do in episodes. Yeah, I'm gonna try to do that again this time. Um, we'll see how it turns out. I haven't actually tried it at all because I know if I do, it's, I'm gonna have pretty limited capacity for it, so it'll work or it won't. I also have a cold right now, so this is, I, this is either like the perfect storm for or against it, and I'm not sure which. Anyway, Farrell got sick of the team's maybe-we-don't-kill-every-single-person-we-encounter philosophy and joined up with their primary rivals, the Mutant Liberation Front. Also, Farrell has a violent catgirl sister named Thorn with two N's, who seems pretty evil herself, as evidenced by encouraging her fellow Morlocks to join the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. In happier news, X-Force is no longer the youngest mutant team, because a bunch of younger characters, a bunch of teenagers, including Cannonball's younger sister, Husk, have joined up and formed Generation X under the tutelage of the White Queen and Banshee. The White Queen, of course, is the person who X-Force member Warpath is pretty sure killed his whole family. Awkward. But we'll get to that a little bit later, because now we're on X-Force number 40. Titled Holding On. This is written by Fabian Nesieza, penciled by Tony Daniel, inked by Kevin Conrad and Tim Townsend, and colored by Marie Javins. And I realized, Jay, we're like right at the end of Nesieza's run. I think there's only one more of his issues, and then Age of Apocalypse, and then he's not on X-Force anymore. And soon after that, he's not on X-Men anymore either. Oh man, that's... That's sad and it's a little frustrating because we, you know, we saw Claremont leave after a very very long time and obviously after after much longer with with kind of anticlimactically and i think this departure is going to be even more so from again someone who really was the next architect of the line yeah yeah there's an alternate universe somewhere where it worked out better between nesieza and marvel and he kept doing x-force and it became like the greatest x-book of all time or at least a pretty damn good one i mean it was already pretty damn good but like even better speaking of the creative team do the did Tony Daniels' men seem to be getting larger? They're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and his women stick their butts out more and more and more. Eventually, every male character will fill an entire two-page spread, and every female character will just be continually spinning around, led by their butt. 
I'd read that comic. I would too, but how would you do it? Like, would you have sort of a, a cutout of the female characters and they'd be like riveted to the middle of the page, but in a way where they could swivel and then you could spin them around like a fidget spinner? I mean, I think this is the place where you t- really take advantage of Scott McCloud's um, endless canvas. Ah, perfect. Well, I'm glad we've worked this out. We've just revolutionized comics in the 90s. Yay? <laughs> Yay, indeed. So, X-Force will indeed go to Burning Man much later, but for now, they're going to their new base, which is Murder World. You know, that world where you murder if you're Arcade. What's really weird is that it implies that they've just moved in while Arcade didn't happen to be there. Like, they don't talk about him being dead or in prison or having abandoned it or anything. Like, they just showed up and moved in while he was out for coffee or something. Well, there's some mention of them taking it from him, but yeah, it's it's really unclear. And I do like the idea that he just like went out, left the door unlocked, and all of a sudden it was X Force's base. What I also love is the page where everyone's reacting to Domino giving them this news, because all of the characters look super nonplussed or really skeptical, except Siren, who is grinning and holding up a fist and also sticking her butt out. But she just looks so excited. My guess is the reason for that is that the Murder World mission, the first one the X-Men went on, that was when Banshee was on the team, and she's always very excited when she can tell stories about how her dad was actually a founding member of the all-new, all-different X-Men, because everyone forgets. I think she's just really into theme parks. Maybe she's just really into theme parks. I mean, to be fair, I, I like theme parks a lot, too. Murder World's actually not a bad place for a superhero team to base themselves out of. I mean, it's gigantic and weird, of course, but it's also got basically everything they would need in it because it's so gigantic and weird. Do you think there are just like a shit ton of robot replicas of each of them and then it's going to get real awkward at some point because of that? It could get so confusing. And sexy. No. Yeah, probably not. So, they do their best to make it their own. Warpath takes the A logo on the command share and crunches it into an X, and Boom Boom blows up the Murder World sign with some truly glorious Boom Boom dialogue. Plasma Bomb Signage Company President Boomer speaking. How may I help you? Yeah. Of all of them, I feel like she would realistically be the one most into Murder World as, like, a general aesthetic. I feel like she probably likes pinball, and you sure can play pinball there! I guess. So, we give Tony Daniels some shit for his anatomy. I think rightly so. But that said, there is some good body language here. There's one page in particular where Domino is, you know, still giving her presentation about why they're in Murder World. And we see Boom Boom looping one of her thumbs through the back of her belt and then one of, and then her other thumb through the back of Cannonball's belt, who has his arm around her. It's just like a nice playful, intimate gesture that's not commented on. And I think that's the sort of thing you really want in a book like this, because the intercharacter dynamics are super important. And if you can just illustrate some of that through the art while you do other plot stuff, that's really efficient storytelling. Yeah, it's no Ileana balancing a pencil under her nose, but then few things are. True, true. Now, this move comes with another advantage for X-Force. Murder World is located under New York City, which means that they're going to have access to a city to civilian lives in ways that they really haven't since starting this team. That would have been such a cool new status quo, like getting to watch these 20-something characters be people in addition to being angsty superheroes. But unfortunately, while I do love Age of Apocalypse, a lot of the status quo is reset right after it, and this is one example of it. X-Force is going to be in Murder World for like four issues before they're not anymore and before the premise is upended once again. 
Aw, oh, man, does Siren ever get to have a job at that plant shop? I don't know. Now I'm just imagining Teresa Rourke in a Little Shop of Horrors remake, and also Black Tom is part of it because of course he is, and now I'm just hearing him sing songs, and he just replaces every other word with shillelagh because that's what I would do, and I think we're getting off track. The important part is, these trains want to fuck. If you're, if you're using those two characters, and you're using, using Siren as the main character, then the most obvious role for Black Tom to step into is Mushnik, which is a really kind of bizarrely amazing direction to go. I love this plan. Who would be the dentist for Max Force? I mean, it would it would probably be Strife. It's going to be a, it's a villain. Yeah, yeah, probably Strife. Freaking Strife. He's really good at dentistry and he understands the causes of gingivitis. Actually, no, no, it's going to have to be Rainfire because it's got to be a villain who's like at least vaguely um, signals cool and sexy. Which Strife absolutely does not. That's fair. Anyway, someplace entirely different, with, uh, as far as I know, no musical theater, Detective Jose Hidalgo, who we saw briefly in X-Force number 37, is searching through the Morlock tunnels for Thorn with two ends. Thorn is Lucia Caya Santos, and she turned up briefly in Cable number 15 recently, which was also Marrow's first appearance, I'm sure we'll cover it at some point, and so that's the lead that Detective Hidalgo is operating from. What the hell makes you think there's no musical theater in the Morlock Tunnels, man? Yeah, good point. I mean, they probably get pretty bored down there, or they did before they all got killed. So something I learned about Thorne, first is that uh, her name's probably pronounced Lucia because Lucia is the Italian pronunciation. I'm doing my homework or attempting to. And the second thing is she's actually the second character named Thorne with two N's in the Marvel Universe. The first Thorne with two N's was a yellow demon guy who was on a team called Salem 7 in the 70s. And I would say I want to see them meet up, but I have no idea what they talk about. Although I guess Thorne wears yellow too, the new one, so uh, they have that in common. I like the idea of them meeting and it just being kind of awkward and them both just sort of standing there and being like, yep. Yeah, for like an entire page, it'd be great. With Detective Hidalgo is a group of characters that I have some fondness for. They're called Code Blue, and they are the NYPD's 1990s superhuman task force. They're kind of great. They first originated in Tom DeFalco's run of Thor, which came right after Simonson's. Uh, obviously a bit of a step down because Simonson, but still fun. And Code Blue actually just showed up in a DeFalco-penned Thunderstrike story in the Thor the Worthy one-shot, so they were fresh in my mind when I read this story. They're basically super cops. There's not a whole lot to them, but I don't know. Super cops are fun. And there's this one lady, and like she's really, really muscly, and you don't see that, that very often. Wait, are they super cops, or are they just cops who police the superhuman community? Both of those things. Mm, I don't know about how I feel about the whole cops thing, but... Okay. Well, that's, that's reasonable. I don't know. It's a comic. Cops are less complicated there. One of them is definitely running through the sewers with a um, waist-length ponytail and a backwards baseball cap, so he's got that going for him. <laughs> Point in Code Blue's favor. And Code Blue and Detective Hidalgo do indeed find Thorn, who's hiding out down here. She doesn't know why they're after her, just that they are, and when she finds out that she's being arrested specifically for the murder of her family, she's furious. I didn't kill my family! She did! Now, who might that she be? Well, three guesses. But meanwhile, outside the police station, the Friends of Humanity, everyone's favorite group of bigoted jerks led by bigoted jerk Graydon Creed, the son of Sabretooth, they're staging a big protest outside the police station. You know, being jerks. 
Yeah, it's fairly obvious that no mutant is going to get fair treatment, whether or not she is guilty of this. Um, but the Friends of Humanity aren't the only ones there. Um, they are, in fact, themselves being observed by Feral. And Farrell is engaging in two comic book cliches simultaneously, or I guess just fiction cliches in general. She is, number one, wearing a trench coat and fedora that somehow works perfectly as a disguise, and number two, catching the news from a bunch of TVs that are in the window of an electronics store. I mean, it's 1994 in New York. I feel like she could probably get away with just saying she was in Cats and, like, wearing leg warmers everywhere. It keeps coming back to Cats this episode. I guess that makes sense. Well, because the, the Cayacento sisters are basically both cats, cats. Oh, man. So in the police station, Thorne uses her one phone call to call Cable, who takes over as Thorne's lawyer? Yeah, we've mentioned before that Cable is, in fact, a lawyer. And uh, this is the issue where that is confirmed, where you find that out, that he went to Harvard Law School, graduated in the class of 88, and passed the New York bar exam a year later. Um so yeah, that's that's I guess what Cable does when he's not out being a, a interdimensional um, cross time messiah figure. Okay, so when Cable and Wolverine first met in a later issue of New Mutants, we learned that they had this rivalry. They they didn't like each other. They wanted to kill each other. I wonder if this is why. I wonder if they were rival maritime lawyers. I was thinking about that, but A, we've got no evidence that Cable's a maritime lawyer specifically. B, I was thinking that because he shows up for this, he's presumably a criminal defense attorney, but then I realized that he's actually probably not because Thorne isn't exactly actually calling him for legal defense. Then I noticed that the police said that there was probably no one else who would defend her, which is ridiculous because this is a city with both Jennifer Walters and Matt Murdock. But D, I was distracted by all of that from the fact that this cable in, in a business suit, um, and I'm sorry, I'm going to drag on Tony Daniels' art again because his cable looks exactly like Graydon Creed. Like, I thought he was Graydon Creed at first. He does a little, it's true. I mean, I would say that, you know, you can tell it's cable because of his big metal arm, but I guess if he's in lawyer mode, maybe he doesn't quite want to show that part off. I mean, you know, gotta 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 choose that kind of stuff tactically. Now, in addition to being a lawyer, um, that, that's not really Cable's relevant skill here. Cable's rel relevant skill is that he's willing to, you know, run through the sewers and try to hunt down Feral. Now, Cable's not just here for Thorne. He's, he's here because he has other concerns, which Thorne zeroes in on almost immediately. You're worried, aren't you, big man? You're afraid that Feral's far worse than anything you ever dreamed. Looks like the general didn't know his troops as well as he thought. One of them went bad, and that hurts, don't it, Cable? I actually really like this concept, what this whole arc is based on. You know, a hero turning out to not be. Not a lot of comics go there with a level of commitment that this one does. It's always interesting to see where Cable chooses to draw those lines, too, because we know he's a guy who has really no philosophical problem with killing. It's true, yeah. But his whole thing with the concept of family, with his troops as his family, with learning to connect to people again with X-Force when he'd really been bad at that. Like, there, there's a lot of, lot of layers here, a lot of cable layers, a lot of oniony cable onion layers. One of the things that I like about this is that it's not entirely clear what he's expecting to do when he finds Feral. 
The only thing that's really, really solid is he's specifically looking for her and intervening in this because he feels responsible for her. Totally. But in the meantime, Thorne's going to be transported to Riker's Island and, oh no, the Friends of Humanity have replaced the cops who were transporting her and they're going to kill her. But that's okay, because X-Force intercepts the police van, complete with action buddies Richter and Shatterstar jumping through the air on matching motorcycles. But... Oh no! Even after that, when our heroes track down Farrell to get the real story, Farrell's super mad and murdery. Farrell is here! Tricked into coming here! Set up by you! Stinking meat! I hate you all! But you want the truth about what happened? You're gonna have to tear it out of me! Who wants to go first? Well, we don't get to find out because at the beginning of X-Force number 41, The Funhouse, A Tale of Deception and Death, uh, Farrell's not there and everyone's just looking for her like they never met up with her in the first place. I don't think she's actually saying that last bit to them. I think she's just sort of yelling it when she realizes they're coming to look for her. Well, I mean, if she's in Catch, she uh, probably is pretty familiar with singing to no one in particular, so maybe she's singing it. Well, then she would be singing a song about her herself probably in the third person no oh, well feral is here she says now, i feel like feral would just deeply deeply hate t.s Eliot. she hates pretty much everyone yeah but like extra so another compliment for tony daniel here his weird lady poses actually work really well for cat people so like thorn and feral they look all lithe and stretchy and i actually don't mind it with them as much as i mind it with basically every every other female character in the book I'm going to take it back to cats again and say that this is a concept that works much, much better in a comic book than a movie. There is that. I also really appreciate that Farrell has finally lost her gigantic Wolverine hairdo, and now it's just super long and flowy with a rogue streak, but she still has her rad sideburns, so that's cool. I was kind of sad about that. I really liked the ridiculous hair. Well, fair enough. Also on the art train, though, there are these blue inset panels, like how flashbacks are sepia but blue-toned instead in this issue— of the violent history of Farrell and Thorne's family that show up whenever either sister is remembering what's going on. And for an issue that has a surprising amount of just characters sitting around talking, that works really well. It adds a lot of visual interest and a lot of horror as well, because even though it's not really gory or anything, the implication of what's going on is rough. This is a place where... I kind of dig what Daniels is doing style-wise because his his little kids are incredibly, like, EC Comics creepy children. They totally are. But we'll get to that. For now, Farrell grabs Detective Hidalgo out of his X-Force escort and pulls him into the ceiling like some kind of a goddamn xenomorph. The way Farrell works in this, she just strikes unexpectedly and viciously. I hate to use the phrase cat and mouse game, but it's that. And then she lays eggs in his chest. I can only assume. What was that line from Parks and Recreation about the possum? Yes! He touched all your bras and I think it laid eggs in your bed. <laughs> yeah. God, that was a great show. Shatterstar, who probably slightly prefers Brooklyn Nine-Nine, is pretty convinced that this story's gonna only end one way. And again, I say that where someone like Farrell is concerned, there is only one solution. Uh, Sam disagrees. There's always more in that, Star. Bad seed that she is, Farrell was still family, in a way. And the way I was raised, you always try to do right by your family. You know, Sam, not all of us have 
perpetually shifting but otherwise perfect families. There is that, but honestly, what he's describing here, that's kind of X-Force. They're found, deeply traumatized family. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's I think, true of all of the X-Teams, but it's something that X-Force in particular takes very, very seriously. Cable and Domino are waiting on the roof above with sniper rifles, but Cable's not going to let it happen. Remember, he shot his son Tyler to save his friends uh, in the future, his past, and he's not going to do that to this group of family. He's not going to sacrifice somebody he cares about, as messed up as she is, to save other people. He wants to find a better way. I'm going to go back briefly, actually, to the preceding issue, because I want to nitpick something that I'd forgotten about um, when we were talking about it which is how they capture Thorn. This is a thing that you see in a lot of movies and comics, which is like people just going out to hunt for a fugitive with tranquilizer darts and then shooting them with multiple ones of them. That's not how that works. That kill that would kill them. Oh, well, I mean, she's tough because she's a mutant, a cat mutant. Then it probably wouldn't work. Like, it's one of those things that has to be calibrated incredibly specifically to body weight and metabolism at, in 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 context in the main context that they're used, which is is for animals and zoos and in the, in, in, in research, um, and yeah, you you don't you 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 don't you don't use them in that context, and you definitely don't use them like that. Code Blue are very good at their jobs, or very bad at them. One of the two. So Hidalgo got pulled into the ceiling, and there's probably ice in his chest or something, and. He talks to Farrell because he's actually known her and Thorne for a really long time. Like, he was a childhood friend of theirs. That's why he's so invested in this whole thing. And he says he knows at this point that she's pretty much evil inside and out. And I love Farrell's response. Nah, not evil, Jose. Just sometimes, sometimes it all gets too much, you know? And as she says this, she's picking up a doll and looking through nearby broken windows. It's really sad. I mean... Farrell's kind of a horrible person, but we're starting to get the impression that there are reasons for that, that she just got pushed way too hard. And we learn a little about why. We learn a little about what happened. And we learn that while T.S. Eliot might not be Farrell's jam, Edward Gorey is a little closer to home because her childhood was basically the Gashley Crumb Tinies. Yeah, her little sister Carolina fell down some stairs while Farrell was watching her. Her little brother Mateo fell off the roof while he was hanging out with Farrell. Their mom was murdered. And at that point, Farrell and Thorne disappeared. A little bit after which, the body of their mom's boyfriend was found stuffed into the walls of a nearby building with his face ripped off. That's why Hidalgo's going after Thorne and Farrell. He always wanted to figure out what happened with the kids, but with this new body turning up, he's got a good reason and he's got some good leads. What he also has is a great deal of sanctimony and moral absolutism. Killing is a crime, and he is a cop, and that's all there is to it. And Farrell immediately calls him on his bullshit. After the fact. That's all the cops were ever good for, right? After we got our TV stolen, they came. After Daddy hit Mommy, they showed up. After Daddy was found dead in an alley with a needle in his arm, then they told us. Tell me, Jose, where were you in your stinking shiny badges when me and Lucia really needed you? God damn. And when Thorn and X-Force show up and find Hidalgo and Farrell, Farrell gets pretty angry with Thorn's judgmentality too, because Lucia is the older sister... And Maria, Farrell, 
she feels like she just did what had to be done to protect them from the sexual abuse of their mom's boyfriend because that's kind of what was going on there. That's when Farrell killed that guy and they stuffed his body into the walls of a building and they ran away. This is some genuinely heavy, dark shit going on here. It only gets more so, too, as they progress, um, because it turns out their their birth father left because there were too many kids. And Lucia thinks that because Maria found that out, she then let Carolina and Matteo die in kind of a Thomas Hardy move. Or maybe she didn't. It's ambiguous. It's implied that she could have saved at least Matteo, but I like that we never find out. I like that all we have is this tragedy and we're left with questions. We do know that, yeah, yeah, Farrell definitely killed her mom's boyfriend. And also, Farrell killed their mom because when she found out what happened, she slaughtered Farrell's pigeons. Maria had these pigeons in a pigeon coop, and they were all she really cared about in the world, just something innocent to take care of. And her mom murdered them all as revenge, at which point Maria snapped and killed their mom. That's the part that's ultimately legally damning for Maria. Because although the legal precedent for this would have been really, really different um, in 1994, it's clear and it's discussed here that that what she and what she, what what she did to their stepfather could have been construed as self-defense although covering up the murder probably you know somewhat less so but not so much this last one even though it was in retaliation for something pretty awful it was an escalation that that's just indefensible in context i think what it comes down to here is there really aren't any good guys in this situation Like, there's a lot of abuse, and you could talk about where the abuse started, maybe with their dad, maybe with the stepdad, if you want to give their dad more credit. I don't know. But everybody's messed up, and everybody's doing horrible shit, even when that horrible shit is what they think they need to do. I mean, the Kaya Santos kids, other than Maria, are pretty blameless here. Like, the only thing that Lucia did was try to run away on her own because it was the only thing she could think of to do when she was 17 and, again, being sexually abused by their stepfather, and then help Maria hide his body. No, that's that's a fair point, yeah. And, like, while I can see where Maria's coming from as far as you were the older sister, I shouldn't have had to do this. Like, at the same time, nobody should have to do that. Yeah, I mean, Maria's feelings are understandable as her feelings, but they're absolutely not fair to Lucia. That's one of those situations where misplaced blame is, is I think, a pretty common, especially a pretty common response with, with kids. And, like, it's, it's not that she's, you know, bad for thinking about this. It's, it's just that she's, she's not really seeing the additional context that, yeah, her sister was also a kid. Totally, Yeah. I gotta say, this story is incredibly, incredibly depressing, but I think it's a good one. I think it's by far the most interesting feral story that we had seen up until this point, and honestly, that we ever see, although there was that one time that she uh, drove away with a werewolf uh, when she was trying to kill Wolfsbane. Long story. But I think it's also addressing some topics that, even though it's through a superhero lens, are really important ones to address in a comic. 
Yeah, yeah, agreed. One of the things that it does pretty well in addressing the stuff that it does is avoid prurience and also keep the point of view firmly with the survivors. Yeah, exactly. It's handled surprisingly maturely, especially for a comic that came out in the mid-90s. Well, it's it's handled maturely. It's handled well without being graphic. What we know as readers is, you know, with obviously, you know, they're fictional characters, someone writing art, the, the narrative that we get and the only narrative we get, and I think it's important that it's the only narrative we get of this stuff is Lucia and Maria's. Like, this isn't something that the cops weigh in on. This isn't something that we get other judgment calls on. This isn't something that someone else drags out as a possible motive. And again, I think that those are the only two perspectives we get here as part of why it works in this issue in ways that... I mean, this is this is a trope and a set of circumstances that on one hand is very much real life derived, well, not the mutation parts, but, um, and on the other hand, radically, radically overused and misused in fiction, including in comics. And this is, I think, an instance where it's actually used pretty thoughtfully and pretty well. Agreed. So Hexforce does show up and they take down Farrell and Farrell and Thorne go to jail and no one lives happily ever after. Farrell will be back, as will Thorne. They're going to be an ex-corporation later, and before that, Farrell's going to join up with the Acolytes because of course she is. She's going to get the Legacy Virus and the Quicksilver Solo series, and then she'll die twice and come back, and it'll be very confusing. But for now, this is kind of the end of at least the major part of the story of Farrell and Thorne. Something that I think is really a shame is that we don't see more of the two of them long-term. Because... Their relationship in particular is one that I think would be really interesting both to see represented long-term in, in a comic like this and also just in terms of interesting and I'm going to lean into the pun and say thorny family relationships kind of ideal X-Men context. <laughs> well, I mean, Farrell's only died a couple times, so uh, someone still could. Well, that and I think Thorne is a really cool character, and I really wish that she'd gotten to stick around more and we'd, we'd gotten to see, see more of her, because I think she's a character who could have been developed a lot more and much better long-term. Well, that was really depressing. Let's talk about X-Force number 42, A Lie of the Mind, which is actually, I mean, serious, but also really fun. This is written by Fabian Nassiza, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Kevin Conrad, and colored by Marie Jevons. Hey, more early Terry Dodson. Yay! We last saw him do some pretty great art on one-third of the Soul Sword trilogy. He's good on a lot of this. I like him a little less, and I think the reason I like him a little less on this is that there's more than one blonde woman, so there are two characters I can't tell apart. There is that. Um, now, once again, we've got an issue that's focusing on reunions of, of characters who've been separated for a pretty long time, including siblings, but these, these are much more civil and, in general, much happier. Now, way back at the beginning of this series, Camp Verde was not X-Force headquarters. In fact, it was a thriving community, but it was completely wiped out, apparently by the Hellfire Club. Now, years from now, we're going to find out that the actual perpetrator was Strife, 
But for now, everyone, including X-Force, still thinks it was the Hellfire Club. And that's especially complicated for James Proudstar, Warpath. He grew up there, but he's also the member of X-Force who used to be one of the Hellions, the first group of mutant teenagers trained by Emma Frost. So it was inevitable that at some point, Warpath and Emma were going to talk and either try to clear the air or just kill each other. Now, they do clear the air about the question of, of the Camp Faraday massacre almost immediately, which is good. But the conversation still turns into a pretty painful mutual inquisition as they confront each other about the counterintuitive and I think often really self-sabotaging paths that they've each taken to avoid confronting their true feelings. Because man, if there is anything that these two are, it is extremely, extremely, extremely ill-inclined to show or accept their own vulnerability. That said, I gotta give Emma some props here. She straight up admits that she hates that Warpath survived the Hellion Massacre when her other students died, and that he's using that survival to just be aimless. She's not letting him off easy. That's Emma. That's how she works. She also admits later on that she's angry at the Hellions that did die for not being better, for not having won. For all of that, this is still a much gentler Emma that we saw confront Iceman in Uncanny X-Men 318. She's really tough on James, but she's also much more constructively tough on him than she was with Bobby. She's much, she's questioning him in much more sort of useful and much more leading ways. And I think much more supportively. Again, this is part of what we've been seeing in terms of what makes her such a good teacher when she actually does it right, when she's able to tamp down her own anger, actually, her own self-centeredness, and really actually push back on people in points where they need to be pushed back on. One of my favorite bits is when she calls James on assuming that she would have killed his family. Why would I have wanted vengeance on you for leaving us? Who was it that encouraged you to go back home again? You did. And do you remember why I did so? Because after the incident with Xavier, when I learned I was wrong to have blamed him for Johnny's death, you knew I wasn't happy, that I had lost a sense of place and a reason for even being here at all anymore. You came to us so I could help you become like your brother, and then learned that was no longer what you wanted out of life. So tell me then, James, why do you persist in following in John Proudstar's footsteps? And Warpath reaches for rationalization after rationalization, and eventually sort of weakly settles on, well, Siren needs me. And just tunes Emma out as she tries to push back. Now, speaking of Siren, Warpath isn't the only one who has folks to visit at the new Xavier School, because Siren is taking this trip as an opportunity to get some quality time with her dad, Banshee. And they catch up on all kinds of stuff, including what Warpath was referring to, what he was helping Siren with, which is her alcoholism. And she is very sunny, very optimistic, and greatly oversimplifying how things have changed for her. It was like a light being turned on in my head, huh? Lights on, problem's gone. And Banshee doesn't buy it, but Banshee being Banshee, he just sort of gently calls out that it doesn't work that way. And I appreciate that. I appreciate how much respect he clearly has for his daughter, 
and how much he's willing for her to learn in her own way at her own pace. I mean, think about it. He's running a school for kids not much younger than her, and she's running around with a group of mutant outlaws. I think a lot of dads would have tried to recruit her, and he doesn't even once. Something that's really important to that, I think, is the context of their sort of reunification and their getting back into touch. Banshee didn't raise her. He is her biological father, but they didn't get to know each other until she was an adult. And they very specifically framed the relationship they were going to try to have as friends. And he is really observing that boundary, which I think is great. I mean, I think it's it's very in character for Banshee to do. And it's really cool to read. But they do talk about her life, and she does sort of talk to him about some of the stuff that's been going on. And, and he sort of gently brings up James and confirms, you know, and Siren confirms just as, as James is talking about how she's the reason he's staying with X-Force, that she really doesn't need him anymore in the way that he seems to need her. Yeah, it's kind of an unrequited thing going on. And again, props to Banshee, because in talking about James Proudstar, Banshee could easily have brought up, you know, that time in Uncanny Number 193 where Warpath kidnapped Banshee and beat him up to try to get revenge on Xavier for Thunderbird's death doesn't even mention it. What a champ our Banshee is. Banshee's been a superhero for a long time. He sort of understands how terrible superhero misunderstandings work. That's probably true. Also, while it hasn't happened yet, this is going to be far from the worst time that he gets dragged into someone else's fight with Professor Xavier. <sighs> Deadly freaking Genesis. Now, there's another X-Force member, too, who's got family at the school, and that's Cannonball. His little sister, Paige Husk, um, is there, and they get to hang out, and oh, poor Paige, she is so much the younger sibling with the overachieving older sibling in whose footsteps she's trying to follow. Um, and Sam is is so concerned that Emma Frost is going to be a bad influence on Paige, that he's being overbearing, and they, they have a kind of adorable argument, and um, and Husk, Husk, um, you know, gets on Sam's case for holding himself up too much as an example, pretty delightfully. Uh, she's, she imitates him, saying, Live your life, Paige. But when I was with the New Mutants, we would run off behind Professor's back there, and then we'd get Magneto to fold our laundry, and we'd zip on up to Asgard with Birdbrain squawking in our ears. It's worth noting that the accent is much, much more aggressively spelled out in that bit, and it's specifically very Claremont spelled out in ways that it isn't in the rest of the issue when either of those characters talks. I really enjoy that they're such dicks to each other in such a clearly affectionate way. It actually reminds me a little of Husk and Skin when they talk. We are neglecting my favorite meeting of like minds that happens on this trip. Listeners, a lot of you have asked us questions. A lot of people have brought up, you know, what would happen if Jubilee and Boomer were in the same place. And a lot of people think that they would be rivals. And in doing so, my friends, you were asking the wrong question. What you should have been asking was whether the world could survive them as partners in crime. And whether there is a better MC for an upcoming shopping trip than Tabitha Smith. Yes, sirree, goys and burls. Not since Bill Buckner let that baseball roll between his legs has Boston seen such a potential tragedy in the making. In this corner, weighing 95 if she's a pound, with golden locks we all know are born of nature's finest chemicals, is Boomer, queen of consumption. 
Challenging her peroxide spending might is the hobbit from Hollywood, the pipsqueak from the Pacific, the princess of purchase herself, Jubilee! And I gotta say, this kinda answers the question of why they've never been on the same team, which is that clearly nobody could handle these two together for more than like four hours. I know, they would be so terrible. Man, I really like this issue. I mean, it's a natural concept to have the old kids team meet the new kids team, especially given all the connections between various members of each side. Honestly, I wish we got to see more characters interact. I wish we got to see more characters who don't have a pre-existing relationship interact. I mean, like, I don't know, Shatterstar and Skin, or, like, Chamber and Siren. Like, there could be so much cool stuff here. I guess what I'm saying is I just want all quiet issues all the time, but also action issues simultaneously. Maybe there should just be more X-Men. I want a page that's just Chamber and Richter kind of glaring mistrustfully at each other. That would be pretty awesome. And the next time we see Richter, he's got Chamber's haircut and won't admit it when anyone calls him on it. So that's the X-Force we have for you today, but you have some things for us, namely questions. Now, this first one's a long one, but it's a really good one, so I'm going to read the whole thing. Levi asks via email, Recently, Leah Williams' Extremists gave us one of the most positive portrayals of a fat character in superhero comics I've ever seen. Her blob was confident, emotionally vulnerable, and sexy, and it was wonderful. I've really enjoyed you guys talking about that on the podcast. It's been really heartening. I've also really appreciated more fat characters showing up in recent X-books, such as Mondo and Goldballs. Most people I know feel that given the X-Men's outsider status, it is a franchise that should advocate for queer people and other groups that are discriminated against. Do you think that there's room for the X-Books to advocate for fat people as well? I often wonder if that's a subject that would be harder for them to tackle due to the fact that many mutants have non-standard bodies, characters like Glob, Rockslide, Bling, or even Nightcrawler. I worry in this new Krakoan status quo that there will be a sort of superficial celebration of mutant body diversity without actually challenging beauty norms in any way. Passing mutants will say they celebrate all mutant bodies, and that will take up all the bandwidth for the discussions so neither fat mutants nor other less typical bodies will ever actually get talked about. So do you think there's room to talk about fat people in the X-Books, or do you think that's too hard given everything else going on with mutant bodies? Do you have any thoughts on the fact that we rarely see female characters in these books with non-standard body types? I know you have headcanons for X characters that could be gay or trans. Do you think that there are any X characters that would work well fat? I feel like Polaris or a peacetime era X-23 might do well. Yeah, God, this is such a good question. Um, first of all, yes, I think it's absolutely, absolutely possible and I think there should absolutely be room for X-Books to advocate for fat people. I think that room absolutely exists within current narrative structures and characters, but the factor that it's going to require that's going to be harder to make sure to have is deliberate effort on the part of both writers and artists, um, as as you know, there was an extremist. You mentioned Leah Williams, um, who was phenomenal in terms of addressing that, but I think as much credit unquestionably goes to, goes to George Gianti um, because that visual representation was, was all him. And I've talked a lot on this show and elsewhere about sort of the ways comics end up in self-reinforcing feedback loops with regards to lack of, lack of diversity and especially lack of body diversity. So artists draw the kinds of bodies they see as superhero, as superheroic and by extension that they see as attractive and that they see as athletic and in doing so, they pretty much always end up reflecting, reinforcing, and further narrowing that range. And that's true on a lot of fronts, um, in, in, in addition to size. Like, that's, that's 
I'd also say that that applies to things like the question of how often you've seen a character in a superhero comic who is disabled or disfigured in a way that wasn't either a byproduct of or compensated for entirely by their superpowers. As far as fat characters, I think that it's it's a particularly self-reinforcing thing, just and, and especially fat women, because, yeah, yeah, as you pointed out, the range of bodies that are okay for male characters to have in these books is much wider than for female characters, which I think is is basically just a pretty direct reflection of shitty patriarchal body standards and tabocracy. That's 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 pretty much the entire reason for that right there. Um, and I would I would I would put there. Um, I also think you're absolutely right about the risk of celebration of body diversity still reflecting those narrow and normative standards by just focusing on visible mutation. But I also think that that in itself could make for an interesting story about the ways that prejudices do and don't intersect. Again, if it were coming from a team savvy enough to challenge and deconstruct it and really ask, why are you celebrating these characteristics that are specific to mutants? But this community is just as shitty and fatphobic when it's not an aspect of a mutation. Why why are we seeing all of these other prejudices carried over from human society when we're supposed to be doing better than that? Um, I think it's also going to be really important, something else that we've seen over time that you didn't mention, but I think is important to talk about in this regarding normativity, that when we get a team who does that, when we get those characters, when we have more fat characters and especially fat female characters, that they not be reverted over time to superhero typical thinness. Because we've seen that happen repeatedly, especially with women. We saw it happen with with Angel. Um, Angel 2, not Warren Worthington, Angel. Um, we've seen it happen to some extent in DC Comics with Big Bardo, who generally just ends up um, much less bulky. Like, she's not specifically fat, but she ends up specifically very thin and just tall a lot of the time, which is is deeply bizarre to me um, in a lot of ways. So it's it's going to have to be something that has creative and editorial support and reinforcement. And that's going to be important. And that's something, and I'm, I'm not describing this as like an, a natural thing that is going to arrive. This is something people need to do deliberately and that I'm, I am calling them out on not doing enough of now. Okay, so in terms of specific characters... Polaris is the first character I would go to. Um, yes, this is actually something that came up a couple years ago at FlameCon, the Designing X-Women panel, um, in context of Amy Fleck's terrific design, which was of where, where, which she drew specifically of, of a fat Polaris. And given Polaris's history and the direction she's gradually been moving as a character as far as self-acceptance, as far as kind of coming to terms with and being more of her own person and less someone who's perpetually angrily castigating herself about not fitting into that, you know, literally and metaphorically narrow image, I think Polaris could work really, really well as a fat character. With, again, the caveat that it would need to be, I think, reflective of that positive progress for her rather than an indication of something terrible, terribly wrong, which is the context in which we've seen a very fat female X-Men character before, specifically Karma. Tangentially, actually, I would also really like to see Karma more directly confront the way that the Shadow King stuff has informed and changed her relationship to her body coming out of it. Um, 
I think the only time it's been talked about at all since was that really god-awful Chicken Curse of the Mutants story, which I am perfectly happy to just count as not counting. Um, and also, this isn't character-specific, and while it would be good to see more general representation of fat bodies, I think it would also be really nice to see a fat character whose appearance is deliberate or is a reflection, you know, positively of their comfortable resting self-image. Very well said. This is a topic that I, I I don't know that I have much perspective on, but I think you you put that gloriously. So this is a topic that I think is really important and really, really relevant in comics because comics are such such a visual medium. And what we're talking about is an area where there's you know rampant, rampant prejudice and discrimination and misinformation almost all of which is based on visual snap judgment. So this is this is one of those places where I feel like comics are singularly positioned to either reinforce or challenge damaging status quos. Totally. Because literally, actual human beings sit down and construct every single body you see on those pages and what those bodies do. And this is something I would love to hear more input on from, from readers who are fat, who are looking for more representation of themselves and folks who come more from sort of a theory and community oriented angle on this. Um, and I, if, if you want, I, I will say, um, I would, I would love to open the, the comments on this particular episode to that. I, we will keep an eye on moderation and fat phobic language will be an absolute no go in that space. But, um, yeah, we would, we would love to see the conversation and sort of the ideas and discussion around this continue. Hell yeah. On a very different note, Devin Tui asks, what is Farrell's Jellical name? Oh, God damn it! I knew it would come back to cats. Or the train's fucking thing, I guess. So, I took a an online cat's personality quiz on Farrell's Wait. behalf. Wait, you, you what? I work hard for this podcast, Jay. And according to that quiz, Farrell's Jellical name would be Philira, or Philira maybe? Or if you use Maria Kaya Santos instead of Farrell, it comes out Imarina. But no, no. I mean, okay, yes, those are, those are cat-sounding names from the musical slash movie. But I don't buy it. I think Farrell would have one of those real word-ish names. And I think that name would be a compound word, namely stinkin' meat. She says it all the time. And I think stinkin' meat's song in the play would be about tearing her prey apart and about how everyone around her was worthless. And it would be glam metal, and it would be amazing, and it wouldn't really fit the show, but I feel entirely okay about that. Also, she doesn't want to go to the heavy side layer. She just wants to make sure no one else does either. Through violence. Glam rock violence. From stinkin' meat. I should probably mention that I think I might have seen Cats, or maybe not, um, but most of my knowledge of it just comes from recent reviews of the Trainwreck movie. But I feel qualified to have these opinions nonetheless. Well, I, I have seen both the live show and the movie, and am weirdly familiar with the source material. So if you have any questions on this, I can absolutely answer them. Are we going to have the talk, except the talk is about Cats? I mean, honestly... I think that the talk about Cats the movie is much, much more potentially upsetting to have to have with your parents than the talk about actual, like, sexual reproduction. Because that, that, I, I saw that movie um, on purpose, by choice. It looked entertaining. I, I saw it, I saw it with descriptive audio for a number of reasons, um, also. 
it was it was an experience it um choices were made it's it's quite quite a thing also i don't really get why anyone wants to go to the heavy side lair because like you know that's just getting ritual murdered right cats is dark right and i thought they were going to tone that part down for the movie but they really didn't well you know what's better than ritual feline murder our listeners right yes um Yes, so much better, unless you are personally responsible for the movie Cats, in which case I am judging you really intensely right now. But um, regardless, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. Some patronage tiers come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. The mic today is going to the one and only, and I think the singularly equipped to comment on the state of cinema, Mojo. Major Domo, who greenlit this feral and thorn plot. I delighted at the ultra-violence. The scene where the little girl fell down the stairs was hilarious, but it was so serious. Our viewers want nothing to do with all this darkness and moral ambiguity. They watch our feed to escape. All right, two new pilots. First, the Miles Van Reed story. Wait, did we reboot that podcaster? Doesn't matter. Write this down. Van Reed is an Earth construction worker, who's also a vampire. And at the end, it turns out he's actually a clone of that other Miles. We'll call it Blood and Two by Fours Legacy. The writings will be amazing. Minordomo, go find me Sabia Barot. We need movie star looks for this one. An Earth Navy SEAL meets an actual SEAL, and they fight their way through an army of radioactive sharks to... Wait for it. Learn the true meaning of Christmas. It'll be a four-quadrant crowd-pleaser, especially after we wire the audience's eyes open and strap them into their seats. Who understands entertainment? Mojo understands entertainment. And with that... Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter and rarely involves discussions of trains who want to fuck. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, explainthexmen.com and the Starlight Express. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and check out the musical Cats, now in theaters, probably still, for existential terror and confusion. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, after we're finished saying judgmental things about Andrew Lloyd Webber, it's all about family again. Well, and makeouts. And people who might have been family, but turned out not to be because of ever-shifting creative teams. Man, I wish I were related to Adam X. Welcome to episode 281 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soup... Superhero soup opera. <laughs> I'm pretty hungry. That sounds good. I know, right? Just a sec. Um, <laughs> I'm really surprised that I've never done that before.